the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Happy Friday, Warwick Long with you for the Country Hour. Today you'll hear a deal has been struck between unions and the last dairy company that they were striking against, uh, Fonterra. So there will be no further dairy strikes, likely for another three years. We will go through some of that detail today on the program. You'll also hear from one of the companies involved, which, you know, we've only had statements from them so far. So it'll be interesting to hear how Fonterra feels about the deal getting done. We will bring that to you on the program today. Plus, Native Foods for agriculture. Not many have been commercialised and become major commercial crops used and traded around the world. Well, there is a big effort to change some of that and we'll go and have a look at, well, some of that today and maybe one plant in particular. A whole lot more coming up today on The Country. Emma Field has rural news for you today. Good afternoon, Emma. G'day, Warwick. Aerial shooting of feral horses or brumbies in the Kosciuszko National Park in New South Wales' Snowy Mountains will be brought back as one available control method to reduce the pests. The New South Wales government put forward a proposal in August to amend the current management plan to allow aerial shooting to help reduce the number of horses from 18,000 to 3,000 by 2027. It's now been approved after receiving more than 11,000 public submissions with 82% expressing support for aerial shooting. New South Wales Environment Minister Penny Sharp says other available control methods such as ground shooting and rehoming aren't enough to protect the fragile alpine ecosystem. The number of horses are too large. They're doing significant damage to the park. The reality is that their population over the last decade or so has exploded. There are too many horses in the park. As a result of that, we need to bring the numbers down. Gippsland farmers in the McAllister Irrigation District who were affected by flooding a fortnight ago have met with local water and river authorities. Southern Rural Water and the West Gippsland Catchment Management Authority met with locals yesterday about the flooding from Lake Glen Maggie which affected Tanamba, Newry and Mewburn Park. Newry dairy farmer Steve Dwyer says despite some anger from landholders, authorities seemed open to working with them. We had a look at the flood modelling and how it normally should occur and uh, found a huge anomalies, of course. So when Uri normally floods at around about 59,000, 60,000 megalitres coming out of Glen Maggie Weir, we were finding it flooding at somewhere around about the 30,000 megalitres. And the local farmers there are the ones who know where it comes out at certain places and they were saying it was coming out where it never had come out before and that was due to a bottle build-up in the river. So the catchment management authorities, to their credit, have said, well, look, if we can come up with some kind of a funding proposal that they're happy with us to get rid of the waddle in certain places. At the moment, the main thing is to keep it out of towns and out of people's houses. Steve, what was the mood like at the meeting? There was definitely a mood of anger towards Southern Water, although, you know, like, but they're only humans and, and, you know, like, people make mistakes. There were no warnings coming out. We were getting SMS messages on our phones telling us that we had spill entitlement on the McAllister River. Yeah. Uh, we don't really need to be knowing that we can get spill entitlement when there's floodwaters roaring down our farms. We would have much rather get a text message telling us how much is being released out of the weir because in the end we were in no man's land. We just knew nothing. No one seemed to know the amounts of water that were coming out of the weir. 
And grain harvest has barely started in Victoria, but in far west South Australia, it's already finished for some. Farmers around Sejuna are reporting they've wrapped up harvest with some hot days in September, meaning they started earlier and finished quickly. West Coast ag agronomist in Streaky Bay, Jake Hull, says it's been an up and down year for growers west of him. The quality's been really good for the finish. Yields are variable. Uh, We've had a fair bit of frost around the place, which has played havoc with with what could have been an above-average harvest and probably drawn us back to average in in most areas. We had three major events occur, which really knocked crops around. The shelf of spring hasn't helped um, at all, but we've also had a lot of areas sowing very early, uh, so crops were definitely maturing earlier, but we were hoping that harvest wouldn't start until at least November, but, you know, a few hot days in September certainly turned crops off pretty quick. And finally, Warwick, we have an update on Ken the Kennebec, the giant spud in Tassie, which was knocked off his pole at Sassafras by wind and an errant truck recently. Well, Tasmania's Premier, Jeremy Rockliffe, has given an update on the famous spud. He says Ken is on the mend and will be back on his perch probably early next year and he could have a female friend. The big spud is positioned on the back of a Hilux, not on top of a pole at the moment. I have found a uh, replacement pole uh, on the farm uh, when I had a scout about uh, over the weekend. Uh, We will um, design how that is uh, replaced, if you like, and, uh, of course, uh, Kenny will get a very serious paint job as well. My father um, has said, you know, maybe before Christmas. I think that's uh, very ambitious, but we might see perhaps in the new year. Um, He is a bit smashed in at the moment, uh, but he will return. Look, I'm more than willing, of course, to see if we can investigate, um, you know, Betty the Bismarck potentially. But, you know, who knows? Kenny has been there uh, by himself for many, many years uh, and he has many friends, which is uh, fantastic given uh, the outpouring of grief we've seen uh, in recent times. And that wraps up Rural News. That is incredible, Emma Field. I, in my mind, I hope they were the first questions asked of Tasmania's pre- Premier at a press conference. The big spud, what's going to happen to it? You've got a family connection. And I love it that he gave those answers. Brilliant. Emma Field there with Rural News. Hey, speaking of big things, Emma's off representing Team Victorian Country Hour at the Rural Press Club Awards tonight. We're up for a big gong. We're up for Media Outlet of the Year. Just the Country Hour team. Our reporters around the country or around this state... And Emma, and uh, I hope we go okay. So uh, good luck, Emma. Good luck to the team tonight. Thought that was worth a quick mention. Nothing more. That'll do. Let's talk strike actions in the dairy industry now. We've been spending a lot of time on this in the last couple of weeks in the country hour, and a deal has been done. It looks likely that there will be no further strike action from dairy factory workers in Victoria after the last company uh, has reached a deal with workers. For an update on that situation and uh, on that threat of six days of rolling strike action, strike action against Fonterra starting from Saturday, I spoke to Tim Kennedy from the United Workers' Union earlier today. Yes, um, we reached an in-principle deal with Fonterra late yesterday evening. Um, and what that means is that the six-day strike that was notified by 300 dairy workers has now been avoided. But more importantly, uh, as a consequence of the action taken by over 1,400 workers over a week ago, we now have uh, fundamental agreement across all those sites now. 
with the Fonterra talks proving uh, positive yesterday. Workers will be having meetings at Fonterra sites today. Uh, workplace representatives will be putting an offer to workers that involves a 5% increase in their wages in the first year, uh, 4% in the second year and 3% in the third year, which is an increase on the original 10.5% uh, offer across three years, plus improved personal leave uh, and shift allowances. Um, so this is a significant move and something we believe that will be welcomed by the workers. So that means the likelihood of more dairy strikes is, is over now? There, there will be no further strikes? Yes. Uh, the intention now is to focus on um, having means of members to endorse these in principle deals. Uh, the notices for industrial action have been withdrawn and so the prospect for industrial action has ceased. For how long? So, so is it really unlikely there will be dairy worker strikes for three years now? In respect of the four companies in these 13 sites, uh, we will have an agreement that will yeah, go over three years and as a consequence, there'll be no prospect for industrial action for that entire three-year period. And was it the strike action that um, got these companies back to the table in your mind? Yes, most definitely. Uh, without the action, and essentially it was courageous action taken by these workers. They'd been talking with the company for over six months. They had made the sacrifices during the pandemic and they actually had to do a hard thing. It's not an easy thing to do what they did last week, but without it, uh, the companies weren't just not listening. And uh, we had a change of attitude uh, when the companies realised that their workforces were serious, uh, that the problems they were talking about were legitimate. Uh, and what we see now is, in some instances, a doubling of those original wage offers, which actually starts to address those cost of living issues and a range of other issues. So without the collective action of these workers in their union, uh, these workers would not be in the better position they are today. So you represent not just dairy workers, right? The United Workers Union is a is a wide-ranging union. Do you think, given this period of time in particular, has been a high increase to cost of living and, uh, and expenses for workers sort of period, you're going to see more actions like this from workers trying to get a better deal? Yes. Uh, the evidence is already in on, on that, Warwick. Uh, we're a uh, we're a union of over 150,000 workers across Australia. Uh, four weeks ago, a 1,000 poultry industry workers, poultry processing workers at Ingham's uh, were on strike for five days to win cost of living wage increases. We are seeing enormous pressure coming from all our major sites. Workers have really had a... It's almost 10 years now where their wages in real terms are, are continue to trend down uh, and that pressure is now at a point where um, workers really have no other choice but to take action. So it's not just in the uh, food supply chain and the food processing area. We're seeing it across a range of our areas, whether it be early education, uh, whether it be aged care, whether it be in the logistics supply chain, that the cost of living pressures uh, have got to a point where workers have no other choice unless their employers actually start to share some of these big profits, uh, you'll see more action. That's Tim Kennedy from the United Workers Union speaking earlier today. So for a company view, which we haven't had much during this strike action, uh, Fonterra Australia spoke to us earlier as well. Hundreds of workers at their sites at Cobden, Stanhope and Darnham were due to start strike action from Saturday had no further agreement been reached 
before late last night. Uh, now that a deal has been done, Rob Howes, who, who, the, who is the supply chain and operations director at Fonterra Australia, spoke to me about the company's position and the way forward now. Yeah, look, we're really pleased, Warwick. Um, we got a uh, an agreement in principle with the UWU yesterday. Um, it's a it's a fair deal, and we're we're you know we're relieved to get the outcome. So, what is the payoff for the workers? Yeah, so it's twelve percent over three years, um, and that's broken down sort of as five, four, and three percent. And there's also a, a five hundred dollar sign on bonus in there as well. Fonterra from the original strike action had told us you were offering 11%. The workers were asking for 15 Coming together at 12 is a win for you, isn't it? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's a fair deal, Warwick. That's what we've been trying to do all along is, is, is get a deal that's fair for, and sustainable for the business so that we can uh, look after our customers and farmers and our workers. Is it hard to find a fair deal under a high inflation period? Because I'd imagine your costs are going up as well as the costs of the workers. Yeah, look, exactly right. I mean, that's the balancing act. The balancing act is that we can't put all our eggs in one basket because, you know, as I said before, we need to put valuable products, you know, that are affordable on the on the shelves. We need to look after our farmers and pay a competitive milk price. And we need to give our workers a fair deal as well. So we feel like we've struck the a good balance of that. Can you sort of speak to that at the moment? Dairy's in a unique position right now, right? Like a lot of other agricultural commodities are are falling in price. We know what's happening in livestock prices, et cetera, et cetera. But dairy, um, this small milk pool you're operating in in Australia uh, has seen milk price, cheese price, a lot of other dairy products rise at the supermarket shelf and at the farm gate as well. You're the processor in the middle of that. Does that make it difficult? Yeah. Yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, I think that there's lots of challenges in the industry right now for processes. Um, so we just have to stay focused on, you know, increasing productivity, doing everything better um, and putting really, you know, high-value affordable products on the shelves that even though there's been price rises, our, our customers still see them as good value. Um, that's the challenge. The union says this deal wouldn't have gotten done if the strike action wasn't taken. Uh, is that how you feel as well? Oh, look, definitely not. Um, you know, I I think that what changed for, for whatever reason is that both sides had a real intent to get a deal done yesterday in the room, um, and, and that's a bit of a change in tone from previous meetings. So I, I, I don't think there needed to be a strike to get to that position. But um, anyway, history will judge that, I guess. How much disruption did the initial strikes cause? Well, we did a really good job, you know, credit to the cross-functional team we put together um, that got us through those 48 hours without spilling any milk and, you know, without losing any customer orders. So, um, you know, whilst it wasn't easy, um, it was a great team effort to get through. So you, you kept supplying all your contracts through that period? Yeah, yeah, we absolutely did. And, and you know, and we, we had really clear comms with our customers to make sure that um, they knew that they weren't going to get disrupted. So if the six-day strike that was proposed had gone ahead, would have that caused disruption to Fonterra? Oh, look, it, it would have been harder, there's no doubt. But, but we had another plan in place. Like, we'd been doing days of 
of planning. Once again, with cross-functional team, we'd been really proactive with our customer comms and our farmer comms. And, you know, we felt that we we're in a, a pretty good space to get through that as well. Albeit, it would not have been easy. Fonterra, obviously a massive dairy company owned by New Zealand dairy farmers as well. Is there a comparison to be made? Do you know the difference between what a New Zealand Fonterra factory worker gets and what a factory worker at Stanhope in Australia gets? Oh, not really, Warwick. To be honest, um, I'm just I'm not that familiar with with what what our friends get over the ditch. Um, so, nah, sorry, can't can't really. Can't really answer that one. Was there any pressure at all from head office in New Zealand to get this sorted? No, no, absolutely the opposite. You know, they really backed us to make sure that we got the right healthy deal done, uh, the right deal done, the fair deal done. So, no, there was no pressure at all. There was just support, basically. And you mentioned all the contingency plans that you're making. Is it a relief to have a deal done and know that this kind of strike action is, is really an improbability for at least the next three years? Oh, definitely. I mean, there's definitely feelings of relief uh, today um, to get the deal done. You know, we want to get back to just getting on with running a healthy business, increasing productivity and, you know, creating more value for our customers so we can get back to doing what we should be doing. And, of course, uh, we've spent a lot of time talking to um, farmer suppliers of all different milk companies caught up in these strikes as well. Uh, they, they, they weren't the ones at the negotiating table. But do you have a message for your farmers? Yeah, look, I mean, we always value the support, you know, the high-quality milk um, that they supply us is, 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 you know, the lifeblood of the industry. We felt their support during these times. Um, we were in really good communication with them. And, um, yeah, we, we just love the ongoing relationship. Rob Howell, uh, thank you very much for joining us on the program. We hadn't heard from, from companies through this, so it's been good to get your insights. Thank you. Thanks very much, Warwick. Good to be with you. That's Rob Howell, who is the Supply Chain and Operations Director with Fonterra Australia. Speaking to you there uh, on the text line, uh, we've got one saying unions are happy to share the profits, but will they put their hands in their pockets when there are losses? And this one with some interesting extra information because we spoke about earlier the TWU um, striking workers, the tanker drivers for Saputo reaching their agreement. The uh, other factory workers now have with Lactalis, Peter's Ice Cream, Saputo, and now Fonterra all have their agreement. Uh, and I did say it looks unlikely to have dairy strikes again for, for up to three years. But this this does point out that there are still other workers in the dairy supply chain saying, hi, country out. There are still drivers EBA agreements coming up to be negotiated earlier next year. So every chance there could be more strikes. We're not price takers. And that comes from someone who signs the text from the number one tanker driver. Do you like uh, <laughs> just giving yourself... That award, uh, but thank you for the information as well. You can always send us a text on the country at 0467 842 722. Love hearing from you. You can give us a call as well, 1300 977 222 to give us a call on the country at 1300 977 222. Let's talk about something else though. We'll go from union negotiations to the courtroom now because the Confederation of 21st Nations Groups has launched a legal challenge 
against the federal government. The Murray-Lower-Darling Rivers Indigenous Nations, or Mildren Group, alleges the government failed to meet its legal requirements to engage and consult with Indigenous groups before approving a water resource plan. The plan is called a New South Wales Fractured Rock Water Resource Plan and is one of 20 that sets out how water is collected and divided in the state. These are a key element of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan that basically talk about how water is to be uh, monitored, gathered and divided. Chair of the Indigenous organisation, uh, Grant Rigney, says they cannot wait for legislative reform and so they're taking legal action. From our perspective, we do not believe that the actual plan actually meets the criteria of the basin plan itself. And there were a few groups, uh, in particular the Taddy Taddy, that were, were not consulted properly and above board as a, what was a requirement that New South Wales government must must have had or had to do and they didn't do that to the best of their capabilities that's for sure so there was an exclusion from some groups in that water resource plans uh, that went up to Minister Plebeth uh, was accredited by or assessed I should say by the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and then recommended to Minister Plebisek to um, approve the plan which the Minister did and uh, we believe that it hasn't been done in a, in a due manner. When did the initial consultation take place? There's been a couple of goes at this from the New South Wales government. As, as we, um, most people would know, um, the basin plan itself was to be, uh, the water resource plans were to be rolled out and done and completed by June 2019. So we're, f- we're over four years over the mark on these plans getting into the first place. So there was a consultation round done back in the very first processes of the water resource planning. As time went by, those plans weren't done very well from the New South Wales government's perspective and the Murray-Darling Basin Authority certainly made the the state aware that there were major gaps and they weren't actually at the baseline for what those plans were required. So there was a consultation platform that was actually undertaken at that very first process. But again, those consultations were done through the Confederation on the assessment on Chapter 10, Part 14 of the Basin Plan, which pertains to the Indigenous values and uses. And that was one of the core things that was needed to be addressed within the actual assessment of, of that water resource plan itself. So but New South Wales obviously took those plans back because um, they weren't meeting the, the baseline to rewrite. The 2019 period had expired. They had been given extension after extension from the coalition government and even up to now with the Labor Party as well in power. More extensions to get the plans in. And, uh, you know, this still hasn't been done to the full extent of all those plans coming in, but they're they're four and a half years behind. But some of the plans itself, in particular Fractured Rock, haven't been done accordingly. And and why are you launching the challenge now? Um, Because we can't actually... We try to challenge, um, even before it went up for accreditation, saying... And our recommendation was not to accredit that plan. We, we put up our grievances and it still went up through the, the, the chain of power um, you know, for the accreditation of the plans right up to Minister Plevisek, um, who signed it off. And, and you know, we don't think that it was actually done accordingly to the, to the actual basin plan under the legal instruments. That's why we're challenging. Uh, are you concerned just about the one group that wasn't consulted? No, there, there was a, there's a few groups that weren't consulted properly. Uh, Taddy was, was the one group that said, no, we're not going to take this. This is not good enough. And we need to be heard in these spaces. Basically, what had happened is that our, um, our nations that were backed into a corner. We have repeatedly raised our concerns um, with the minister um, on that assessment, and it was disregarded. And how are you backed uh, into the corner? What does that mean? Well, backed into the corner because we had no other choice but to actually 
push push against a, a platform that wasn't undertaken, we believe legally. And and you've said that you have uh, spoken to the department a number of times and tried well, to raise your concerns too. Well, we had spoken to the department. We had written to the department um, on on our concerns around the plan. Through the department, you know, go through their due diligences, and they believe that the. New South Wales government had met the very minimum baseline of what they needed to be doing in the plan for the credit, you know, for the assessment, and they recommended it to Minister Plibersek to accredit. And what's the outcome that you are hoping to achieve now as a result of this challenge? We would really hope that there's a whole legal reform going on in the, in the actual basin plan itself. There needs to be policy and legislative reforms to make sure that First Nation groups are really underpinned and written into these particular plans, which last for, well, I think, they go beyond a 10-year lifespan. There's 10 years of, of uh, processes that could be put in order where First Nations are, are not up front and forefront in this space on their own country. That's Chair of Murray Lower Darling Rivers Indigenous Nations, or Mildren, Grant Rigney, speaking there to Zane Nabi. Uh, the New South Wales government, the Murray Darling Basin Authority, and the federal minister are named as respondents in the challenge. In separate statements, as spokespeople for both the Federal Department of Climate Change, Energy, the Environment and Water, and the New South Wales Department of Planning and Environment says it would be inappropriate to comment as the matter was before the courts. In a statement, the MDBA, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, says it remains committed to progressing the assessment of water resource plans and maintaining strong and constructive working relationships with First Nations, end quote. Uh, more coming up on the country. We've got a new national shearing champion. He's pretty happy about that. We'll take you to that shortly on the program. Program and we'll talk about Murnong. If you don't know what that is, I'm not sure I knew what that was either until I listened to this story. So we'll talk about that and a whole lot more coming up on The Country Hour. You can always send a text to 0467 Right now, though, let's get regional news headlines with Lexi Junowick. Good afternoon, Lexi. Good afternoon, Warwick. Independent think tank the Grattan Institute has questioned the Victorian government's plan to spend a billion dollars on its relaunch of the State Electricity Commission. A 10-year plan for the SEC was announced yesterday and Premier Jacinta Allen said it would help drive down power prices and increase Victoria's production of renewable energy. But the director of the Grattan Institute's energy program says the state doesn't need a government-run energy provider to achieve those goals. Residents of a popular Gippsland coastal town are pleading with the state government to have the sound around its jetty dredged. Earlier this month, Locksport community members sheltered at the local pub as fire stopped them from leaving the town, which has one road in and one road out. The local publican argues it's a safety risk because in its current state, big groups of people would not be able to evacuate by boat. Swan Hill Rural City Council is calling for more volunteers to help provide the local Meals on Wheels service. The council says shortages are placing extra pressure on existing volunteers and that the service can be the difference between elderly residents staying at home or having to move to a care facility. And a couple whose Otway Rangers home was extensively damaged in the recent earthquake is considering moving into a caravan due to a lack of long-term housing options in the area. The magnitude 5 quake struck near Colac in the early hours of Sunday morning, followed by several aftershocks. Daniel and Andrea Clifford have been told to stay out of their home as there are holes in the tiled roof and it may collapse. For more news and stories, visit your local ABC station online.
Thanks, Lexi. Lexi Junowick there with regional news headlines. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Let's find out what's happening weather-wise around our state. Michael Efron is the forecaster on duty for us today from the Bureau of Meteorology. G'day there, Michael. G'day, Warwick. How's it looking around Victoria today? Has a lot of that wind left us? Yeah, it has, yeah. We've got a high-pressure system crossing uh, Tasmania today, so very settled with uh, just light south to southeasterly winds, and they're bringing some very light shower activity to uh, East Gippsland at the moment, but we should see that clearing uh, as we head further into the afternoon. Elsewhere, the winds are starting to tend more uh, northeasterly as that high moves over the Tasman Sea. So for a lot of the state, uh, clear skies uh, today, although Gippsland, a bit more cloud cover around and much warmer than what we've seen over recent days. So temperatures in the high teens or low 20s across the state, 17 at Bairnsdale, Ballarat up to 19 degrees. Elsewhere, Seymour up to 20, Horsham 22, Mildura 23. So uh, nice conditions after other cold uh, weather that we've had over the last couple of days. But as we head into Saturday, we'll see those winds tending north to northwesterly and freshening a bit in the south during the morning and the afternoon. That's ahead of a, a week southwesterly change which will develop over the southwest during the afternoon and then push into central districts at night but uh, as that change heads further east uh, we will see it uh, continuing to weaken so um, not a, a huge um, change in conditions uh, as that change pushes further east. We do see however elevated fire danger over parts of the northwest so we, we are looking at uh, high ratings at the moment for the Mallee and Wimmera districts. And in terms of temperatures, uh, a cool start to the day. Temperatures are around 6 to 9 degrees, maybe even uh, a bit colder around the Wimmera and parts of uh, the northeast as well. And then top temperatures are around 23 to 28 degrees. So uh, back to more uh, normal conditions, I guess you could say, for October. <laughs> and then into Sunday... It's we'll been see, nothing but normal uh, for the last few weeks, hasn't it? Up and down. That's and up right. And down. We'll see uh, another week change pushing through on Sunday, but ahead of that, still uh, moderate north to northwesterly winds. So at the moment, we do have extreme fire danger forecasts for the Mallee. So people should keep an eye on the forecasts uh, that will go out again about 4 pm today. We'll see uh, if that changes. We're looking at temperatures in the low 30s through uh, the Mallee, elsewhere generally mid to high 20s, although in the southwest, generally below 20s. And again, a cooler southwest would change, pushing inland through the afternoon and evening. No rainfall with that change. But then on Monday, a, a cold front comes through. We will see uh, showers extending from the west, especially over southern and mountain districts. Local hail developing in the south and the snow level coming down to about 1,000 metres by the end of the day, the risk of some thunderstorms in the south as well. In terms of temperatures, still reasonably warm through the far northwest and Gippsland, 25 at Bansdale, 23 at Sale, Mildura, 25. But in the southwest, 15 for Hamilton, 17 at Warrnambool and Ballarat. And elsewhere, temperatures around 18 to 23. And those showers will deliver around 1 to 5 millimetres 
over southern and mountain districts, perhaps slightly higher uh, around parts of West Gippsland through you know, the Bass Coast, Bauble, Plateau region. So not much getting into other north of the state. And then Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, we'll just see a cool southwesterly airstream continuing with some very isolated share activity in the south, I think more likely on Tuesday than uh, Wednesday and Thursday. And most temperatures uh, around 17 to 21 degrees uh, across the state, although by Thursday probably getting back into uh, the mid-20s across the north, but in the south staying around 18 or 19 degrees. So uh, for once we do have a fairly warm and, and settled weekend, but it will change again uh, on Monday with a return to wintry conditions. Yeah, so rainfall totals for next week. What are we looking at around the state there, Michael? Yeah, so on the Monday, around one to five millimetres in the south, perhaps slightly higher through West Gippsland, but uh, across the north, really not much less than a millimetre or two. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, no, no rain expected across the north and in the south, generally less than a millimetre or two. So Monday's not the big rain day, but the day rain is expected. That's it, yeah. And what's the likelihood of frosts? We've been keeping track of this the last few weeks. We've had a couple of little nasty events on some crops already. What's the outlook for frost conditions for the next week or so? Yeah, so tomorrow there's there's probably an outside chance of frost in the far northeast, also around the Wimmera district, but I think temperatures generally too high, around 5 or 6 degrees. And then following the change on Monday, I think Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday morning, there's a, a slight chance uh, in those same areas, the Wimmera and uh, the northeast, but generally looking at around 4 to 7 degrees, so not the widespread uh, frosty conditions through those parts. And uh, then it's a Friday country hour weather. Michael, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about warnings, not only for the next 24 hours, but ones expected over the weekend. Is there anything we should keep an eye on? Yeah, so we do have a sheep graziers warning out for the central and east Gippsland districts for the cold start on Saturday. Also, it's still a minor flood warning for the Murray. So that was a moderate, but it has been uh, downgraded now to a minor for the Murray at Barham. Brilliant. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for that. I made you go through everything for me there, but it's important stuff. Really appreciate it. It is. No worries. Thanks, Warren. Michael Efron, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, getting into those details for you there, which is what I know you love as well if you're a dedicated Country Hour listener. Always get advice on how I ask questions of the Weather Bureau. And you know what? I don't mind it because... Goes to show it is important, isn't it? You can always send a text, 0467 842 722 if you'd want to send a text to the country. Or indeed, if you want to send us an email with a bit of uh, feedback. I like the positive stuff, but we take it all. Countryhour at abc.net.au if you ever need to send us an email. Countryhour at abc.net.au. Let's talk a bit of shearing now on the Country Hour because South Australian shearer Nathan Meany is our new national shearing champion. Nathan was one of the few we caught up with when the Country Hour broadcast from the shearing championships last year, wasn't it? Uh, at, at Bendigo there. It was a fantastic day out and about. 
Uh, I had a ball meeting some of the elite sports people. Nathan is no different. He took out top spot at AWI National Sports Shear and Wool Handling event in Jamestown over the week last weekend. Was part of a three-man team who also beat New Zealand in the Trans-Tasman Challenge. And more on that in just a moment as well. He said it's great to take home the national title after a few years of attempting it. Oh, yes, thanks, Selena. No, it was uh, quite a good win in the end, so we had a good weekend. Fantastic. And I understand like, you've had a few cracks at this now and you've come pretty close a few times. How did it feel to finally be standing up there as the, the national champion? Uh, yes, I think I'm pretty sure it was 15 times I've had a crack at it. And, uh, yeah, there's been four four seconds uh, yeah, and a couple of fourth and a fifth. So, yeah, it's sort of been, been all over the place, but... It was actually when um, I got called up there, I yeah, sort of went a bit blank for a little bit, but it all sort of come to in the end. And no, it was really good to be standing up there holding the trophy. And I actually worked out how heavy that wooden trophy is. <laughs> <laughs> so a good lesson there to never give up. Keep having a crack because your day might finally come. No, exactly. Yeah, and a couple of times sort of through it, um, to beat Santa Mornis, Jason Wingfield or Daniel McIntyre, you've got to be absolutely on on the day. And and a couple of times my fitness may not have quite been there, but you can't go back and turn around and you can't change it now. And like I said, you had just had to be on on song the whole time. And Daniel Daniel comes second by four and a half points again at this time, and he was definitely the man to beat. Anyway, he uh, he actually won the Open event. Um, we were in the Trans Tasman together, and and that uh, was actually good. And, yeah, good to be up there though. So talk us through. You had to go obviously through a number of rounds. Um, how did how did the day progress? Uh, yep, so on the Friday we had our practice sheet. Uh, they come from the Sparks family at Mundunny and did a magnificent job on them. I think they had 2,500 crutch stuff and, and a top of it to Jamestown. And the committee, like I called out there on the Sunday to have a quick look at the sheet while they were crutching. And on a Sunday morning, they had 10 stands going. And I reckon standing around there would have been another five or six lads that could have been sort of crutching. So it was absolute top effort to those guys for the up what they did and um, so yeah but for the, that was for the practice sheaf and and then on the Saturday we had an open event which we sort of I just took that as a as a practice run uh, just to try some gear and that out and uh, made the made the top six in that uh, ended up fourth there and just sort of one of me canes wasn't quite going right so I changed a bit around for the for the Sunday for the big event. What's going through your mind? Through the process, Nathan, do you are you you're thinking lots, or is it, do you just sort of get into a zone and just shear away sheep after sheep? Oh, there's a lot going through your mind when you're setting gear and that up. And I was going to change it about three times in in the heat, like before we started the heats. And then you sort of once you you bolt your comb and cutter on, it's just don't look at it, and yeah, you just got to tell yourself that's exactly how it's going to work. And and then forget about it and have an open mind when you get up there and just to open up when the time comes. Now, you mentioned the Trans-Tasman Challenge there and uh, a resounding victory and getting one up over New Zealand on home turf. That must have felt pretty great. No, that was a good win, that one. Yeah, and uh, I sort of didn't have a, a real good cheer in the open event, so I actually took it took a fair bit out on the Kiwis. So I actually had quite a good cheer myself against them, which was which was quite good. And, and like the crowd just got, being a local crowd, got really by me, so... Yeah, that was only one way to, that I had to prove a point to them because they, yeah, they give us a, a touch up in New Zealand last year or early in the year, sorry. So we uh, we had to return the favour. 
So this has got a nice, uh, great rivalry going on between you and the New Zealanders now, but Australia is up. So you've added to our record of um, we're, we're keeping on top of the Kiwis. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's quite good to stay in front. And like all, all three Kiwis, like we're, all, we're all good mates and, and a few of us have actually worked in the sheds together sort of over in New Zealand and, and since we've done over there. And But it's always, yes, yeah, sort of when you're up on the board, it's, you're cheering for your country, not your, not helping your mates out. So you want to be, be out in front. Now, you will be heading over to New Zealand uh, for the Golden Shears, what, early next year? That's scheduled for. How many times now will this, that you'll be representing Australia? Uh, so this will be the fifth year of representing Australia in the test. And like last year, Daniel and myself represented the country in Scotland for the, for the world champs. And then I represented Australia back in 2012 at Masterton for the world champs with Shannon Warner. So between now and then, um, obviously you'll have a fair bit to keep you busy <laughs> through the season, but will you do any special preparation or training aside from, you know, just keep shearing between now and then? Uh, yeah, we've got a little bit going on. So we've got a contract run ourselves. So we still will go shear right up to Christmas and try to organise workers and sort of couple of young kids keep you on your toes and, and run, buying and selling a few sheep on and off. But yeah, we've got plenty going on, but yeah, I'd, I generally don't do any uh, as much as like with PT or anything like that as I fitness stuff as I probably should. But um, yeah, well, I just sort of sort of keep going in the sheds and and when it's coming coming closer, sort of step up and go that little bit harder each day. Fantastic. Well, we can't wait to catch up with you again uh, coming early next year when you head over to New Zealand and and congratulations again on coming out as the uh, the national champion this year and well done for sticking at it and, and getting there, Nathan, and representing South Australia as well, uh, standing up there as, as the champion. Great to catch up with you. No, all good, thank you. Very happy sounding Selena Green to have a South Australian winner. And Nathan Meaty has been trying to get that title for some time, as you heard. Amazing to hear. He's from Kapunda in South Australia. National uh, Championship title winner, uh, Daniel McIntyre from New South Wales, who we've spoken to uh, when we've looked at shearing industry in the past. Uh, a legend, effectively, of that sport now was in second. And Josh Bone from Victoria in third. Another very, very good Shearer as well. Uh, I think we'll be hearing and reading his name in many more years to come. Uh, in blade shearing as well, John Dalla from Waruka on the York Peninsula in South Australia got four, first place as well. And speaking of him, combined with New South Wales shearer Andy Murray, who was in second in the in those titles, but they combined to perform the Australian team, which finally beat New Zealand in the long-running blade shearing competition in that trans-Tasman test held in Jamestown, South Australia. Uh, Andy Murray spoke with Ondine Slack-Smith about how it was judged and how they won it. With the shearing competitions, what they do is they'll give you... They judge you out the front. They'll penalise you for any second cuts you do, so cutting the wall more than once in the same spot, creating locks and um, damage to the height of the animal. And then also out the back, they'll judge you for the same stuff, but a bit more right there and really go through it all. And um, they'll also time it. And the points accrued from all that get divided by the number of sheep, and that would be your score. How did it feel then when you found out that you had done so well and gotten that title? Oh, it was really good. It's really good to have the opportunity to represent Australia again especially after our win against the Kiwis, which was 
the first time Australia has ever beaten New Zealand at a Blade Test match for the last um, 14 years that it's been going on. So that win against the Kiwis that you're talking about, that happened from, from what I read when you were competing with a teammate, is that correct? You, you made history there? Yes, yes. So, so can you tell um, me a bit about that? Yeah, so my teammate and I, John Daller, who's the current Australian blade shearing champion and has been the blade shearing champion 12 times now. Yeah, we faced up against them on Saturday night and, yeah, we beat them by eight points, I think, overall. So the two Australian blade shearers get their points added together and so do the Kiwis. And whatever the sum total is of that is the score per team. And, yeah, we were eight points in front. And so how did it feel to beat the Kiwis? Oh, it was incredible. The sole fact of I was able to do it with John, my mentor, and he's taught me just about everything I know about blade shearing. And, yeah, to actually beat them was amazing because, you know, they have a lot of opportunity to blade shear over in New Zealand. And in Australia, we don't really have that same sort of um, consistent blade shearing, sort of only for a month at a time here, just basically just shearing stud rams. And, yeah, for us to really get in there and get it done was absolutely amazing. Well, when it comes to blade shearing, are there any benefits of shearing with blades for the sheep or the wool value? So for the sheep, what it does is, and the wool, it actually closes the fibre rather than the machines actually just smash it. So it does leave a really neat job and you can sort of pick the height of how much wool you want to leave on. That's Gilgandra-based shearer Andy Murray speaking to Undine Slack-Smith there about blade shearing after taking home the Trans-Tasman test against the Kiwis in Jamestown uh, recently for the Australian team. Pretty exciting news, really. Uh, Let's talk about Australia competing in international spheres Right now, though, but this one, well, has a lot in the agriculture industry quite nervous. Several agricultural industry groups are calling on the federal government to step away from free trade negotiations with the European Union. The federal trade minister, Don Farrell, is set to meet with his EU counterpart over the next couple of days in Japan for the G7 trade ministers meeting. Groups like the National Farmers Federation, Cane Growers Australia, uh, also dairy uh, Australian dairy farmers, are all saying this deal should not be signed. Chair of Cattle Australia as well, David Foote, adds his voice to it, saying the beef industry is concerned about what might get signed. We're concerned because the original deal on the table was described as totally unsatisfactory, which is why Minister Farrell walked away. But we haven't heard of any upgrade to that offer or anything since. And then we found out that there's a sideline meeting opportunity as part of the G7 trade ministers in Osaka. So we've gone from a what was described as totally unsatisfactory deal and walk away to now a willingness to want to do a deal. So we just have no idea of what's in between. Have you seen the free trade agreement paperwork for yourself? Have Have you seen what is on the table? No, and as of seven days ago, nobody has seen what's on the table. There's just an expectation, and the Minister described to a group of us who got to meet with him and Assistant Minister Tim Ayres and Minister Murray Watt, an expectation that they'll improve their offers.
So that's we have no transparency of what's on the table. And he's told you that he wants to sign a deal? He, he's the Minister for All Trade in Australia, and whilst agriculture is important, that we and the NFF reminded him, is that he wants to do a deal for all of Australia. And, and there's a concern that we may not get the chance to negotiate a deal again, given that it's 50 years since the last one. So there's just this, there's just this uneasy feeling that whilst he won't do a bad deal, that he wants to do a trade deal. And it's not just about ag. So you feel this is unusual because I was trying to remember that the FTAs with Korea, China and the UK, and I just can't remember this sort of anxiety within the ag sector. I can't remember this sort of public push against it. Yeah, no, and that's and I think it comes down to because we we haven't we haven't seen what the offer on the table is to lock our industries away for the next fifty years. And if and if you if you think about you know, the starting point was an unsatisfactory starting point because they just carved off the tonnage to the to the UK out of the EU, which halved effectively our normal, our high quality access, not talking grain fed, just grass fed, halved our access at the tariff rate into the EU. So our, our starting point was we we're, were, were half as bad at the start. If trade is... And, 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 and thinking, Matt, and sorry, talking about, and, and thinking, Matt, Canada got 60,000 tonne access. The US has 35,000 tonne access and doesn't even have an FTA. And New Zealand, I haven't got the exact number, but I know they got an 800% increase from where they were. And currently, as it stood, the offer on the table was back to where we started from. And as Catalyst Trade is saying, a fair trade deal before a free trade deal. What does a fair trade deal with, the, with Europe look like in your books? Oh, somewhere up where our competitors are. I imagine, I'm, you know, I'm sure. Why, why can't we have the 60,000 tonne as the minimum? We're a major export nation, the second largest on, on, on the globe. I mean, stretching it to Mercosur might be a bit much, but why? Why not? We're a major exporter of high-quality beef. Let, let the commerce make the decision of whether Australian beef is affordable or meets expectations. Don't control it by government quota. That's Chair of the Cattle Council, oh, sorry, Chair of Cattle Australia, David Foote, speaking to Matt Brand. I'm remembering the old names there. Let's finish this week on the country. Did you know of the 35,000 native plants in Australia, only one has been commercialised for food. It's macadamias, by the way. Uh, well, now a farm in Victoria wants to add more to the list, putting more native foods on your plate while also investigating drought resilience in cropping. Annie Brown went to look at plots of warrigal greens, kangaroo grass and myrtle. There's another good one there. Oops. That one broke That's off. Right. That's fine. I'll give them a wash and, cool. uh, and then we'll... All right. We'll, we'll cook them up a bit. Gay Baker is an Indigenous farmer in the hills of the Kiwa Valley in northeast Victoria. This morning, she's digging up some myrnong, an Australian native yam. It's been grown here in Australia by Indigenous people for a very, very long time. It used to cover vast areas of Victoria and New South Wales and further on. It was a f- staple food crop. was nearly lost over the time with um, sheep and cattle and loss of habitat. It is a vegetable, so it does need tending. To me, it tastes like a sweet parsnip. Some people say they can taste coconut. I can't. 
and you roast it. So you, like you caramelise your onion, you caramelise your mernong. And it's very, very tasty. So this is taken, how long is this crop here taken to grow? Okay, so these are seedlings that were brought last year in wintertime last year. They would probably nearly be two years old by now, basically. And these little ones over here are ones that have struck from these seeds, so they're a lot more naturalised, and they struck autumn, late, late summer autumn. In this area, they're they're behaving differently than what's recommended and behaving differently than even in Wodonga where I grew them firstly and out at um, NEC Greengate Farm where I did trials out there in 2018 in the middle of the, the drought. So they do have an ability to adapt to different areas. I guess you've been growing menong for a while then now. What started all this and why did you want to bring it back? Um, when I was doing my Diploma of Organic Farming at Greengate, our head lecturer, uh, Rob Fenton, gave me the opportunity to run the Murnong Project there. And I was always interested in bush foods. I wanted to do herbal teas. But the opportunity was given and I took it up. And we've just gone ahead in leaps and bounds since then. It's interesting being, I guess, at a trial site for crops that are thousands of years old you know they're not new crops are they no they're not new crops but the plants themselves the cropping methods have been lost the knowledge has been lost well lost to me anyway and my family and so forth so it's now um, relearning re-establishing re-identifying uh, I have no idea where the lanceolata will cross with Walterii or Scapulata. I have no idea. We, we, we'll just have to... It's a trial and we'll grow it and see what's going to work, what's going to be the most resilient. Why do we need to bring back Indigenous cropping? The soils are not European soils. They're Australian soils. And they're trying... People are growing, and they're not trying, but they are growing European crops. But our environment is changing. Our weather is changing. Everything is changing. These plants, our Australian native plants, have lived in Australia for thousands upon thousands of years. They've lived through drought. They've lived through ice ages. They've lived through many changes. They are adapted to Australia. It is only a commercial aptitude that we all buy wheat bread, not kangaroo grass bread. It's now time to relearn these things and their values, and their values as food crops are quite often a lot higher than European commercial crops. And reintroduce them and, and bring it from bring bring it from a, a a garden novelty to a bespoke industry to then a commercial industry. That's the process in my mind that we need to go through to reintroduce plants, native vegetables, 
that are totally adapt to Australian conditions. That's Gay Baker from Gap Flat Track in Kagunya speaking to Annie Brown, part of the University of Melbourne's redesigning Broadacre Farming Systems. That's it for us today. Catch you next